0: Welcome to Gen X Mixtape, a nostalgic podcast dedicated to the art of making mixtapes and the Gen Xers who made them. This week's theme is Romantic Dinner Mixtape, where Alan and I will be curating side B of a collection featuring Cupid inspired jazz and pop standards for you and your Valentine.
1: yes. And you know, we didn't really go into it uh, for side A, but you know, we really were looking for just that that very elegant, very romantic, music that would accompany your your candlelit dinner, you know. If you and your Valentine instead of going out are staying in and you, and you just want a romantic night of dinner followed by some dancing. You know, your our grandparents knew how to do it right. I mean, these songs are it, it doesn't get any more romantic.
0: Should we should we arrange it like that where we have the early songs being more like songs you listen to during dinner and then towards the end of the mixtape it's more of dance type numbers or
1: I, we, we could I don't, know, I, I don't know I'm not really sure how we're gonna work I even thought at one point of kind of because a lot of times you know our mixtapes often were story arcs you know they would oh, kind true. of yeah, yeah. they would begin they would they would retell the story of how we met going through all the milestones and then no, that makes sense you know, yeah. so I thought about framing them in the, in the course of a, like a romantic yeah. you know relationship I, I had all kinds of ideas I, I don't, I'm not really sure what we're gonna do with it yet um But yeah, that might be one way to do it. I don't know. So hopefully, if if you're listening (laughs) today, that means that you, I would think, uh, listened to and enjoyed Side A because that was my biggest fear: was that we were going to leave our core audience, you know, just out of of this particular mixtape. I I was really afraid that Gen X was not going to buy into, you know, a lot of big band, if you will, uh, swing music. But if you're here with us, thank you for, for keeping up and, and joining the ride, and hopefully we'll give you another 12 cuts that just really give you the, the romance for, for Valentine's Day that you're looking for. So,
0: well, I guess I'm up first. Then You that. are, yes. All right, well, um, one of, another one of my big introductions to big band, swing, jazz, pop standards, all that, was, uh, of course, the movie When Harry Met Sally. And that was, uh, I would say, for a lot of Gen Xers, the first time they really identified this music as being something they would want to listen to, um, as opposed to just being their grandparents' music. Right. Because Harry Connick made it, um, you know, made it, made it relevant, made it, made it sound fresh. Um, of course, the big single off when Harry met Sally was, uh, it had to be you. Yep. Um, it was on VH1, may, maybe even MTV. And of course, you and I love that movie. Oh, you know,
1: I still do. I. I You know, I I insist it is simply the the greatest romantic film, at least of our
0: generation. And I'm a sucker for for dialogue, and and that was a great, not quite, but almost a walking and talking romantic comedy. I mean, it just basically focused on two people and their, their interaction, not a whole lot of other... Plot points going on, which which I really enjoy. You know, right. not a lot of gimmicks in that movie, and it was successful. So, oh yeah, right. But um, I'm going to yeah. choose a song that I first heard from the When Harry Met Sally soundtrack, and that's uh, I Could Write a Book. Um, but I'm going to go with uh, the uh, Anita O'Day. You do have conic right? And you're you don't, do we have no conic No, enough? I have I have conic. Oh, that's right. You do. You conic. do have later. Yep, 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 yep. yep, yep. I was going to say, why didn't I? But that makes sense, uh, but uh, I went with Anito Day's version 1960 from the album. Anito Day sings uh, Rogers and Heart, which, of course, is a uh, big duo songwriting duo from uh, that time. Um, in fact, uh, Rogers later goes on and works with Hammerstein, Correct. Or Hammerstein, Hammerstein, uh, for a lot of great musicals like the Sound of Music and, yep. um, you know, Carousel and those types of uh 60s musicals. Did they do Camelot too? I think they might have, been, I, I don't know my 60s show tunes yeah, as I, well, I, but I think
1: think so I, I don't want to commit to that though
0: mm-hmm. So the, uh, the song first appeared in the Rogers and Hart musical Pal Joey um, like I said I went with O'Day's 1960 version which has been covered by <laughs> dozens and dozens of people Frank Sinatra Dinah Washington I already mentioned Harry Connick Jr. Uh, Anita O'Day's version definitely swings uh, making the listener want to ignite a lucky strike tumble the ice cubes at the bottom of freshly poured drink while leaning on the bar with one elbow and just surveying the room.
2: If they ask me, I could write a book About the way you walk, whisper, and look I could write a preface on how we met So the world would never forget and the simple secret of the plot is just to tell them that I love you a whole lot. And then the world discovers, as my book ends, how to make two lovers of friends.
1: Anita O'Day, she isn't, you know, there's a name that if you don't know a lot of this music, you, you may not know the name Anita O'Day. I mean, she's, she was every bit as popular and as important to to jazz as Ella, Billy, Sarah Vaughan, who, I don't think we have any Sarah Vaughan. We don't. Um, but, you know, Anita O'Day, for whatever reason, Jenna X, I, I can't recall ever hearing her name, you know, when I was younger and, and, if I didn't know swing music today, I, I doubt I would hear her name still. Um, yeah, she played an important role, though, because she changed the public perception of the female jazz singer. Um, she, she, well, for one thing, she, her, her moniker, if you will, she was known, um, she, she, she received this this honorary title from the tabloids, she was known as the Jezebel of jazz um, because she, she had a heroin addiction uh, like, like Billy did, and thanks to drug busts and resulting jail time, and she, she there was a time when her name was synonymous with scandal. Um, but she changed the perception of the female jazz singer not necessarily in in that light. She she just rejected the traditional image of of the cute looking, sweet voiced female vocalist in the big band era. Uh, she didn't want to be seen as a decorative distraction. I mean, rather. O'Day really wanted to be taken seriously as a musician, and she perceived as she wanted to be perceived as equal, I guess, to to all the men on the bandstand. So she she dispensed with all formal evening gowns and and replaced them actually with a pencil skirt and the same style jackets that the men in the band wore. And musically too, she was very different. She used her voice like an instrument, which a lot of a lot of the vocalists did. And she improvised vocal lines like a horn player, so she she did the scatting as well. But even though she maintained a central core of hard swing, her skills in improvisation of rhythm and melody rank her among the pioneers of bebop. Okay, which again, you're talking Charlie Parker, you're talking John Coltrane, Dizzy Gillespie, Thelonious Monk. Talking about when jazz branches, we talked about this last week, and you know the the swing, if you will, became. Simply pop music. She actually patented a distinctive vibrato-less approach to singing. Uh, she was an artist who she did not sing vibrato. Um, she liked to have very short, very—I um, don't want to say choppy, but it was—it was definitely very percussive. Her name. I mean, it was like you know, like a percussion instrument. Um, she would sing v- vibrato-less, um, but highly rhythmic and and. You know, she depended on that scat-style improvisation. She always maintained that uh, when she had a tonsillectomy, tonsillectomy as a little girl, that they accidentally excised. She, she lost her uvula. And she insisted that because of that, she was incapable of vibrato. All of the female vocalists worked, you know, that, that quivering, that wavering vibrato uh, in their long, the long syllables that they held. And, you know, they just did not. So very different um my first pick is going to be uh blue moon and uh this is blue moon holds a special place in my heart blue moon is what introduced me to standards I actually my grandparents um, in 1981 they were going to have a 40th anniversary party which was going to be you know dinner and then dancing we had the band uh all you know' I'll all, all three of their kids, my dad, his sister, and his brother, and then all of, you know their kids, uh, me and all of my cousins, you know we, we threw this huge gala for my grandparents 40th anniversary and I had it in my head that I was going to sing a song at their anniversary party and right about this time, actually it was right right about the new year, uh, 1981, I, went out, and then, you know, I asked my parents, you know, I wanted to sing a song, and they suggested Blue Moon, and, you know, Blue Moon, what I knew of Blue Moon was the doo-wop song by the Marcells, right, and they t- explained to me that it was a, a standard, it was around long before, you know, the the 1960 doo-wop classic, and they suggested that I listen to and, and practice singing to Julie London's version, um, so Julie London's version holds a special place in my heart, anyway. But I practiced and I practiced that song literally. The the party was in the summer, and I started in January. I mean, I had this song committed to memory. I mean, I was back then. I could actually sing. Right? It was before um, before puberty. It was before you know years of smoking destroyed my voice. I actually could kind of carry a tune at that time. So I mean, I was practicing the phrasing. I I mean, I. I only knew Julie London's interpretation of the song, but I mean, I had it down. So then we get to the party, and here's the problem. I had practiced it, obviously, eight-year-old me. I was practicing it a cappella, right? I get to their anniversary party, and suddenly I'm up on stage. I begin singing the song, and the band begins accompanying me, and I went blank. I mean, I just, with, with the instrumental, I just, I lost it all. Because I, suddenly it just threw me off, and I could not get it back. And I remember I just I was, you know, horribly embarrassed and just really disappointed. And my grandparents didn't care; they thought it was the cutest thing ever. But um, this song, this was my introduction to standards. So I had to include Blue Moon. Um, it, it's just it's it remains to the, to this day one of my favorite songs. It, it's another standard from the Rodgers and Hart songbook, first recorded in 1936. Um, It was actually, even in 1936, it was the first instance of that familiar 50s progression in a popular song. The 50s progression, folks, is a a chord progression and and a turnaround common in early rock and roll songs. It sometimes goes by the name heart and soul chords, the stand-by-me changes, or the doo-wop progression. So, you know, there's your connection to the Marcells again. Over the years, Blue Moon has been covered by a myriad of artists, right? Every genre. I mean from Billy Holiday to Cyndi Lauper Sam Cooke to Beck I mean this song has been covered by everybody but I wonder how many remember actress Sybil Shepard's cover of this song beautiful oh it's it's Amazing.
0: From Moonlighting, from yes. the Moonlighting episode. Yeah, she recorded The black it. and white sequence.
1: Exactly. Yeah, she recorded it in that groundbreaking episode from the second season. And, you know, as we explained last week for Side A, a majority of these standards were first performed in Hollywood movies of the 1930s and 40s. Well, one of the things I admired most about Moonlighting was its love for old movies. Very nearly every episode of that show featured some illusion or homage, you know, and, and it was most apparent, obviously, in the episode The Dream Sequence Always Rings Twice, from season two. Series creator Glenn Gordon-Karen, he, he, he actually called the episode a valentine to a style of filmmaking that had gone out of vogue. And what a perfect valentine it was. I mean, the episode featured two dream sequences set in the 40s, one Maddie's, the other David's. And the sequences were shot on actual black and white film stock, with each dream but on different stocks so they would appear authentic. ABC... They hated the idea of doing a black and white episode. They proposed that the show be filmed in color and then decolorized later to make it cheaper. But, you know, Karen, he suspected that the network would pull a fast one and air it in color, so he he just said no. ABC was also convinced that people would think something was wrong with their TV sets, so to assuage them, Karen asked Orson Welles to do an introduction that told audiences the episode was supposed to be in black and white. Karen never thought Wells would actually agree to it, but he did, and it's it's a marvelous scene. Sadly, a week after he filmed it, Wells passed away. So the episode then was, uh, which aired a few days later, it was dedicated to him. In both dream sequences, Shepard plays the role of Rita, a female vocalist fronting a big band of the era. And in Maddie's dream, Rita remains stationary in croons Blue Moon. In contrast, David's Rita wiggles her hips, dances around the stage, and flirts with her audience while singing I Told You I Loved You, Now Get Out. Um, fun fact, since Maddie and David worked at Blue Moon Detective Agency, Karen wanted Shepard to sing the Rogers and Hart Blue Moon. And she agreed to do it, but only if she was able to sing I Told You I Loved You in the second sequence. So there you go. And to the surprise of Moonlighting fans, when, the, when she sang she was good I mean she was quite good and I'm sure many of our listeners I mean you, you likely remember Bruce Willis's short-lived singing career right The Return of Bruno, return of Bruno yeah. yeah but what most probably may not know is that Sybil Shepherd had and still has a singing career as well unlike Willis she continues to record and perform in concert to this day um, you know the Memphis born former model she has actually recorded 12 albums in total and, and the first, titled Sybil Does It to Cole Porter, was released in 1974. Um, she sings jazz standards. And that's, that's her, her thing. She, she is a jazz singer. She often quips that three different record companies went bankrupt after she did albums with them, which is true. <laughs> and she often tells how, after hearing one of her albums, Frank Sinatra sent a telegram to the producer saying what some guys would do for abroad. And when performing live, at, at the beginning of every set, she reminds her audience that the more they drink, the better she'll sound. So I give her props for for that wry self-deprecation. But the truth is, she actually sings really well. She began taking singing lessons at age sixteen, with the coach of the Metropolitan Opera Chorus. And you know, with her penchant for jazz, she actually played with some heavyweights on on her second album, which was titled "Sybil Gets Better." Getz spelled G-E-T-Z, as in Stan Getz, the saxophonist. Um, She has a solid jazz ensemble backing her up, led by legendary tenor saxophonist Stan Getz, with other jazz luminaries from the West Coast jazz scene. And additionally, the songs were arranged by Brazilian guitarist Oscar Neves, who is a founding figure of Bossa Nova itself. So while it's true that Shepard is limited range, no one will ever mistake her for one of the great female vocalists, she takes the Fred Astaire approach in singing, and she works carefully within that range and even uses the limitations to her advantage. And the trumpet solos on Blue Moon, I mean, they perfectly complement her voice on the track, and she stretches out ravishingly. Uh, Blue Moon is, is a sexy torch number in her hands without a trace of campiness, and her intonation or timing are perfect, and her voice is strong. It's, it's daring. It's true. Somewhat bland, But there's a southern languor and warmth that manages to break through as she sings the song, and the result is exceedingly easy on the ear. Add to that a stunning big band arrangement by the incredible Alf Clausen, and you have a cover that deserves a second listen. So I thought, I've got to include Blue Moon from Moonlighting, right? Yeah. Until (laughs) I discovered that Spotify doesn't have it. Now, we have never, or I should say, we have not since we've, Really began focusing and, and you know kind of laying out the songs on Spotify. We have not picked a song that Spotify did not have. I, I know early in for, in the first season we had some that we would discover as we were sequencing. It's not here, but this is the first time that I'm deliberately choosing a song that is not on Spotify because I want you, I, I want our listeners to hear at least a small part of this song by Civil Shepherd. You know because it's it's truly amazing.
3: Without a
1: But on our sequence, I am going to go with Julie London, um, who is just Julie London deliver, delivers hands down probably the sexiest version of Blue Moon ever recorded. Um, it's just it's just simple accompaniment with a guitar, um, a jazz guitar, and and it's just Julie London didn't have a lot of range either. But she was very soft-spoken. she sang like she, like she talked. She would actually crowd the microphone, she put her voice she put her mouth on the microphone, and she would sometimes even whisper, you know, sing, whisper uh, the lyrics. It came across so breathy and sultry and you know she Julie Lund, and she was dropped dead gorgeous. so unfortunately, she has become kind of a footnote uh, to the you know, popular culture of the 50s and 60s, but she had a string of huge albums. Uh, "Crimea a River was her, her biggest hit uh, from her first album. But what you find is that, you know, Julie London, with every album that she recorded, she, the record label in the, in you know, the illustrations that, you know, her pictures that they would put on the album, she was, with every album, she was wearing less and less clothing. And they were really trying to drive that, you know sex kitten image um and they, they just never gave her you know a lot of room to, to grow as an artist she was literally i mean in the era that she she was recording i mean this is the Mad men era right she was basically i hate to say it she was too pretty to actually become a great jazz vocalist not through any fault of her own but the way that she was treated um but yeah, sexiest version of Blue Moon ever recorded, Julia London. So that's what you'll hear on Spotify. I definitely wanted you to hear Sybil Shepherd's Blue Moon. So, I'm kind of cheating, giving you two versions. All right, of the no, that's song, good. I,
0: that's, that's more than fair. Your turn. All right. I think I, I still have to give, I borrowed your first season of oh, Moonlighting. Moonlighting on DVD. Don't yeah. let me forget, I could get that to you. All right. Well, we talked about Bobby Darren's slum just briefly on Side A's episode last week. Um, but um, I'm, I, I do. I love Bobby Darren. I said last week, you know, I kind of just saw him as the Splish Splash guy, you know, with some of the 50s rock and roll stuff. But uh, when I found out that he kind of had these whole swinging jazz standards side of him, uh, of course, I, I knew Mac the Knife. Um, I'm beginning to see the light I was introduced to um, from the Swinger soundtrack. Uh, Beyond the Sea, I just love that song. Beyond,
1: I, I love love Beyond the scene. I, I was That's the one I suspected you were going to go with. But I was really excited to see which one you did choose.
0: Went with Moore from 1964 from uh, Hello Dolly and Goodbye Charlie. You're a big fan of Moore? Oh yeah. Yeah? Yeah. yeah. The uh, song originated from an Italian documentary film, Mondo Cain. Uh, but it's been recorded by so many artists over the year. Again, this is a common theme, right? Big Dana, Carol Williams, Roy Orbison, Frank Sinatra, Judy Garland. Uh, I haven't heard all the versions, uh, but of the ones I have, Bobby Darren's is my favorite. Uh, why? Because I just think there's no cooler, crooner voice than Bobby Darin. Uh, unfortunately, he passed at the age of 37. He had like a childhood illness yeah. um, that uh, kind of destroyed our opportunity to see potentially decades more of great performances, kind of like a, a Tony Bennett figure. Yeah. He uh,
1: uh, he was one of the greats. And, you know, he had just... Um, just recorded Splish Splash and Dream Lover, two of his big, big rock and roll hits. That same year, it was under the suggestion of his publicist um, and friend, Harriet Wasser, um, I think is how you pronounce her name. She actually suggested that he record an album of standards, which he did. It was called That's All. And, you know, Mac the Knife is on that album, of course. Mac the Knife won the Grammy for Record of the Year in 59, and it won Darren the Grammy for Best New Artist, the song was number one on the Billboard charts for nine weeks in 1959. It, it still today is one of the biggest selling records in history. And Bobby Darren, what's so incredible about Bobby Darren is that he was the first rock and roller to bridge the single record and the album gap between teenage and adult. Uh, you know, the teenage and, and the adult buying. The guns.
0: kids liked them and the parents liked exactly. them. Exactly.
1: Yeah. yeah. Um, that was not true of any other. Rock and roller, I, I assure you, not not when the genre, you know, began. Anyway, um, his standards actually proved so popular that he was courted by Vegas, and his life as a nightclub performer then began. And he was arguably, you know, he, he was one of the most popular acts that Vegas ever had. Um, he his act broke attendance records. He performed to standing room only crowds, and as his lounge persona grew in popularity, he largely kind of quit the rock and roll scene, and he focused. On a career of jazz, really jazz standards, which he continued until '73. When, yeah, his his illness uh, made it too difficult for his live performances to continue. So, yeah, love Bobby Darin. And when you chose more, I was just elated. Great choice. More than
4: the greatest love the world has known, this is the love that I give to you alone. More than the simple words I try to say I only live to love you more each day More than you'll ever know my arms Long to hold you so my life will be in your Keeping, waking, sleeping, laughing, weeping Longer than always is long Long time but far beyond forever
5: you be mine.
4: I know I never lived before, and my heart is very sure. No one else could love you more.
1: Okay. Now I get long winded sometimes, I know that. But this is Sinatra. <laughs> so Sinatra uh I, I don't want you falling asleep on me, but I might go a little long here. Um, okay, first of all, the song that I chose, it was composed by Jerome Kern with lyrics by Dorothy Fields. It's titled, The Way You Look Tonight. Um, the song was originally from the 1936 film Swing Time. And in the movie, Fred Astaire, again, sings the song to Ginger Rogers while she's washing her hair in an adjacent room. The recording reached the top of the charts for six weeks that year, and the song won the Academy Award for Best Original Song. Now Stair's original recording, it actually still sounds pretty good almost eight decades later, uh, as do so many of the covers that followed, but for me, none of them comes close to the way it was performed in 1964 by Frank Sinatra. His cover, really it does, it remains the most popular and imitated version of them all. You you mentioned that you really like Bennett's.
0: Yeah, I do. That's my favorite. I mean, I like Sinatra's, but of all of Bennett's performances, I like Bennett's version of the song. And
1: and Bennett's is wonderful. Bennett Bennett performs it as it was originally written, as a a ballad, very Mm -hmm. slow.
0: It was also featured in My Best Friend's Wedding, which again, most of what I know about these standard songs came from movies.
1: (laughs) Right. Yeah, now Sinatra, he was one of the first to speed it up. And, you know, what sets his version apart, Sinatra, here, um, is that, you know, as opposed to all other vocalists that had come before, Sinatra just had that everyman charm. You know, he brought it to the song. He vocalized with an ease that kind of makes common folk think that they can copy him when they wouldn't dare try to emulate Nina Simone or, or Ella Fitzgerald. But that's where Sinatra surprises, because his unique style is more difficult than it sounds to those singing along. And the instrumentation is always worth a million bucks. And here, the bass line, it creates that foundation for him to start the song off nonchalantly while building a full-bodied vocal workout. His voice kind of glides over the subdued but stunningly beautiful orchestration effortlessly (laughs) in sublime and and tender acknowledgement of the object of his affection. So, you know, through the decades, Sinatra's musical embellishments here have been reprinted and retaught as the as the, the songbook standard. Uh, for for this often imitated crowd pleaser, but like I said, I'm, I'm going to be long winded. So if it's okay with you, I, I want to talk about the song itself for a moment. Yep. We, mm-hmm. we haven't really this is going to be the first time that we've really analyzed a song, but I, I want to do it for this one because it, it's really it's pretty fascinating. Um, you know, the song begins someday when I'm awfully low, when the world is cold, I will feel a glow just thinking of you and the way you look tonight for a song that makes so many people sigh with contentment that is quite a bleak opening you know I mean from its first line the song jumps into sadness it, you know if anything it understates the situation the world is cold and and the way you look tonight is a song that accepts the inevitable you know there will be days when you're awfully low but there are no consolations to compare to the enduring glow of the way his lover looks and it acknowledges impermanence even as it celebrates forever I mean to me that's huge and then this is a song that has no chorus and that was unheard of among standards but it, it doesn't need one instead the song just flows in a continuous line it never pauses to develop what has gone before you know most composers work in shorter bursts they were they repeat that two bar melodic and rhythmic idea to aid memorability take for example it had to be you right you repeat a tone up it had to be you and then you take the phrase up another notch I wandered around and reprise it instantly and finally found, you know. Gershwin does a lot of this, too. I mean, embrace me, my embraceable you, take the phrase up, embrace me, uh, you, irreplaceable you, and, and so on. But but the, the way you look tonight, it starts and it flows to the end like one sustained continuous thought. It's an A-A-B-A song, but unhurriedly. So with 16-bar sections, lyricist Dorothy Fields, I mean, she wrote one long flowing line, a 26, word sentence and with one very unobtrusive rhyme. I love this rhyme. Still, in the beginning, someday when I'm awfully low, when the world is cold, I will feel a glow just thinking of you. Glow is it, it's half buried. You know, it's 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 a half buried rhyme. But it's the trick of the song. Because composer Jerome Kern, he wrote this very tender melody, and Larissa's Dorothy Field, she matches it in all its sweet warmth. I just love the unobtrusive but perfect words she puts on that three pickup notes uh, with which the composer starts with the second section. Oh, but you're lovely with your smile so warm and your cheeks so soft. There's nothing for me but to love you just the way you look tonight. And there you have another disguised rhyme. Warm is paired with for me and love you completes of you in the previous section. So, I mean, the middle section the release, it just keeps the song's flowing quality. Most composers opt for contrast, you know, a legato middle following a choppy staccato main theme. But on this song, the release just, it's just that. It's a natural development of all that has come before it. And then there is the song's transition, which is beautifully poised, you know, with with each word your tenderness grows, tearing my fears apart, and that laugh that wrinkles your nose touches my foolish heart. And the lyric, it trembles on the brink of grandiosity, Right. But then it settles for this rueful, human, goofy sentiment. So the potentially overblown fear tearing is balanced by nose wrinkling, right? And it's, it's, it's just this image of comfortable intimacy and true tenderness. So many songwriters you know, of this era, they gave serious love songs to the serious love interest, and they gave funny songs to the comedic couple, and never the twain shall meet. But most of us are serious and funny, romantic and silly, sensuous, foolish, all at the same time. And few songs walk that tightrope. And then, the killer. Lastly, there's no words, just a perfect contented hum. Mm-mm, right? Singers love that little hum, but I've only ever heard one version make it work up-tempo, and that's Sinatra's swinging cover, with a closing hum of pure contentment. You know, Sinatra, oh, Dave, he, he was a legend, and his music was the soundtrack to the second half of the 20th century. And, and the best Frank Sinatra songs, they resonate as strongly today as they ever did. He's arguably the greatest popular singer there's ever been. And, and I believe he was the best interpreter of the Great American Songbook. In a 1963 interview with Playboy, Sinatra said, When I sing, I believe I'm honest. And if you want to get an audience with you, he said, there's only one way. You have to reach out to them with total honesty and humility. And he's right. And that, that's key to this song. Which is why I believe out of the over twelve hundred songs that he recorded in a career that spanned seven decades, the way you look tonight I, I think is Sinatra's very best song. I, I I do. So I know you love Bennett, I which yeah, he has a killer version, but there's just something about Sinatra and I told you last week there are three songs that I chose that is a wedding DJ. They are played at every single wedding. At last was the big one. The Way You Look Tonight, Sinatra's version, number two. That makes sense. Everybody yeah. wants to hear this song at a wedding. Someday,
6: when
4: I'm awfully low When the world is cold I will feel a glow Just thinking of you In the way
6: you look tonight Yes, you're lovely, with your smile
4: so warm and your cheeks so soft. There is nothing for me but to love you and the.
1: Sorry, I know I... No, it's good. That was I, a great analysis. just gave a poetry lesson. It's a great analysis. <laughs> I just... This song, I... Oh, I This is... Oh, probably my favorite song. It had to be you as a close second of the standards, but this is... Oh, this one's just, for me, the greatest. So.
0: Nice. Very good.
1: But now you're going to talk about probably the most smoldering and sexiest song yeah, of the era. Yeah, so. from the
0: album Things Are Swinging in 1958. I'm going with fever by oh, peggy lee
1: what a song um
0: like many gen xers i first heard peggy lee performing he's a tramp in lady and the tramp when i was a kid yep. although i didn't know who peggy lee was at the time
1: no but even that is a smoldering song <laughs> yeah <You know? laughs> peg yeah. is kind of hot in the pound so
0: i i really have always loved the minimalist arrangement of this song basically it's clicks and upright bass Occasional drum flourish, um, but it just focuses on, like you said, Lee's kind of sexy vocals. Yep. Um, the song first appeared two years prior, 1956, recorded by uh, Little Willie John. But Lee's version is, is, is very different. In fact, uh, uncredited, she rewrote lots uh, of the lyrics. Um, I believe the whole part about uh, John Smith and Pocahontas and uh, Cleopatra. Yeah, they, those those are were
1: her words. Yeah, she's uncredited. Yeah.
0: yeah. Yep. Um, now, this always surprises me. Despite being such a classic, and I would rank this like, uh, for me, like top ten of, of of the traditional pop, jazz, whatever we're calling them these days. Um, this song only reached number eight on the Billboard chart. Yeah. It was not. I mean, it was a hit, but it wasn't a, a smash hit as I would have expected.
1: No, you're right. But but you know, number eight for a swing. For, for a jazz number, in the rock and roll era, that was unprecedented. I, I
0: mean, guess okay, yeah, I mean, that's it, fair. It,
1: it, it might as well have hit number one because jazz tunes did not hit, you know, the, the top of the chart. Gotcha. And so, um, yeah, I mean, oh boy, it, it. Her version. I mean, it's 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 inspired by a slightly more rockabilly version of Fever, you know, which was by Ray Peterson. Uh, he he recorded a version in '57, uh, one year before hers. But yeah, Lee eventually heard, you know, Little Willie John's version, and, and just decided to record her own take, and you know, it, it filtered this edgy teen angst through the cool sophistication of a female jazz master at the top of her craft. I mean, it's just incredible, and you know, she insisted, like you said, on that stripped-down arrangement, right? Um, and and her producer Dave Cavanaugh, and the conductor Jack Marshall, they wanted to be bigger, you know, they, they wanted the full orchestration, and Lee just she just put them in their in their place. She determined that this project was going to be cool yet earthy, you know, very minimalist and like you said, bass percussion finger snaps and that's it. And, and the finger snaps, you know it, it's it's just it's, it's just a sparse arrangement and the satirical storytelling too. I mean it echoed the voice of the beat generation, really. I and mean, she understood this new era and her place in it and she wanted to tap into the burgeoning rock and roll audience. She used beat slang. In the lyrics such as Julie Baby, you're my flame, and Daddy Oh, don't you dare. And you know, she swings in that perfect R and B tone over the West Coast cool school inspired arrangement. I mean this is a song that still today, it, it, it does, it just smolders. I mean it is it is still one of the sexiest, sultriest, most incredible songs, I think, that has ever been recorded.
2: Never know how much I love you. Moonlight's up the night I light up when you call my name And you know I'm gonna treat you right You give me fever When you kiss me fever When you hold me tight
1: Fever In the morning A fever all through the night The last thing I'll say about it, you know, it was a brilliant culmination. Of, of experimentation and pop excellence, but this song "Least Fever" it was the subversive voice of sexuality under the repressive spirit of the conservative fifties. It was kind of like a signpost for the sexual revolution that was to come, you know. I she, she, I think she got away with a lot on this song because she was Peggy Lee, mm-hmm. you know. Had a teenager recorded this song? Oh yeah. Well, it it never would have. No one would ever have heard it on the radio. Right. So. Yeah, no, fantastic tune. Okay, so now we do get to Ella and Louis. Yeah, and oh boy, you know when I hear Louis Armstrong play, and it, honestly, it's like the purest expression of the human spirit. You know, I and mean, music historians they rave about his tonal purity, but they tend to downplay those aspects of his music that can't be discerned by the five senses. To me, the feel that Louis Armstrong gives to his music, combined with that exceptional. You know, those exceptional technical gifts is what gives a sound its spiritual essence. I mean, he, he influenced every form of modern popular music, every one. And he was the source for many features of music today that we take for granted. Prior to Armstrong's ascendancy, music was a very highly structured and organized experience where accurate replication of a piece was all that mattered. Even early jazz. I mean, it, it sounds oddly confined with within conventions, but Armstrong... He introduced the world of music to the value of improvisation, both instrumental, instrumental and vocal. And he made improvisation a vital and viable aspect of music because he imbued his improvisations with technical brilliance and this irrepressible spirit that made the listening experience enjoyable and inspirational. I mean, he here's the thing about Louis Armstrong. He gave musicians permission to do more than perform music. He gave them permission to play music and to explore, to break boundaries, to create, to have fun, right? Now, when I hear Ella Fitzgerald sing, I dream. I mean, simply simply put, her voice is rapturous. I mean, it it embodies all that's beautiful with with a sense of wonder. Ella has been given the honorary title of the Queen of Jazz for her purity of tone, impeccable diction, phrasing, timing, intonation. I mean, she could do it all. Her horn-like improvisational ability, particularly her scat singing, I mean, she invented her vocals as she sang and she produced melodic lines that put her in the same category as the great instrumental improvisers. She was, is, and always will be recognized as the single greatest female jazz vocalist of all time. I mean, there's a reason why she is known as the first lady of song. So, you know, in a career spanning seven decades, she recorded 70 long-playing albums and she recorded more than 2,000 different songs. 2,000. And with her warm and lovely voice, I mean, she just reached heights that are simply unattainable by, by jazz vocalists today. They were unattainable by her own contemporaries at the time. So it's, it's no wonder, then, that when Armstrong and Fitzgerald, two of their generation's most vital, most universally venerated voices and musical spirits, when they collaborated on a series of duet recordings in the 50s, the resulting multi-album run proved enormously popular. But here's the thing. On paper and from a vocal perspective the pairing seemed incompatible, really. Armstrong has that gruff, wavering, guttural growl that would crack and it could break at any moment. And it, it was juxtaposed with Fitzgerald's graceful, commanding, wide-ranging, beautiful style replete with crystal-clear phrasing and, and improvisational versatility. And, you know, this was not the most congruous of couplings. And the thing is, though, I mean, translated to vinyl, the, the duo's distinctive, contrasting voices, they complemented each other perfectly. I mean, it was a yin and yang of pop jazz, uh, you know, perfection. I mean, the duo's dynamic chemistry, I mean, they just made for an irresistibly endearing partnership. So the, the first of the albums that paired this prize duo was Ella and Louie. It was produced by Norman Grands. The LP was a huge hit upon its release, and it has only grown in popularity in the years since. Well, everything fits and flows on, on the album, with a pulsating inevit- inevitability, I, I, there's a clarity, a, a wholeness of sound, and a supple mastery of phrasing that should make this album daily listening for any aspiring female singer. And with this album, Armstrong he kind of breathes himself into full stature again. He he reminds anybody who had forgotten that he was still the unrivaled premier male jazz singer. Because Armstrong hadn't sung many of these songs in years, and the challenge kind of awakened the whole musician in him. And because the melodies and lyrics were fresh to him, there were no pat routines for him to fall into. So hearing him, hearing the both of them interweave on this album is kind of euphoric, even.
0: Well, I love their version of uh, let's call the Holding off.
1: Oh yeah, yeah. Incredible. Well, and there's so many. I mean, to me, I, for the longest time, I had "Our Love Is Here to Stay," or rather, "Love Is Here to Stay," because that one is just. I think their voices, the way that they interweave on that one, is probably the the strongest of their recordings not necessarily the best but it's the strongest it, that one's not from Ellen Louie that's right so I just mean the the two of them. Right, yeah right, right but the thing is I decided to use a different version of our of love is here to stay so I I could have picked any song by these two any song because every last one is a classic everyone is epic everyone is incredibly romantic in the end I just chose my favorite ballad
0: of, and this one's of the era, along for for the time. I mean, five minutes plus.
1: Yeah. Oh, uh, yeah. This
0: is an intense slow dance song. It
1: is, yeah, and it, it is. It's it is without question my favorite ballad of of you know, when you look at the Great American Songbook. It's my favorite one. It's the nearness of you. Um, the song debuted in 1938 in the movie Romance in the Dark. Louie and Ella's recording, though, to me, I, this is the definitive version of the song. I mean. Oh, it's just, it doesn't get more romantic than this.
3: It's not the pale moon that excites me, that thrills and delights me, oh no, it's just the nearness of you. It isn't your
4: sweet conversation that brings this sensation. Oh no. It's just the
1: nearness of you. Now I will say because I'm I'm gonna start getting back into contemporary artists a little bit here, but if any of our listeners if this is your first time hearing the song if you find that you really like it do yourself a favor and listen to Nora Jones' cover Uh, it's on it's on her Grammy award winning album Come Away With Me because Nora Jones performance of The Nearness of You is without question the most romantic version of the modern era but yeah it's just this combination of Ella and Louis it, it doesn't get any better so
0: my favorite Ella song do you know what my favorite which one Bewitched, Bothered, and Bewildered. Oh, yeah. It's my, my favorite performance from her. Yeah.
1: Oh. And that's, you know, that song...
0: Which was pretty risque for the time. Oh,
1: very. Yeah. I mean, she talks openly in that yeah. song about a few right. things. I, I would have loved to include... It's a, it's a breakup song. Right. Ultimately. Right. I mean, it doesn't feel that way at the beginning, but by by song's end, it's definitely sure. a breakup song. But yeah, oh, it's that's another one. It's a lot like Fever. I mean, it just... Right. Oh, yeah. It just... Mm. You know, gets gets. They
0: got they got away with she got away with a lot. Yeah, I think that was from Pal Joey too. Actually, Hmm. all right. Yeah, yeah. Okay,
1: I'm I'm good. Unless there's something you. I'm gonna pick an
0: obscure artist that you might not know of. She's Swedish. Mm -hmm. Do you know what I'm gonna say? uh yeah well, well, of course because we yeah, trade it, so. tra- 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 <laughs> Um
1: old habits um yeah now ellen anderson yes
0: yeah. yes ellen anderson uh and this is the most current recent song on my list so this came out in 2020 um ellen anderson is a swedish jazz singer and uh from the land of abba and uh and ace of bass and all the uh the pop tunes here comes this uh jazz singer <laughs> Um, and I went with, uh, again, you know, Nat Cole one of my favorites and we can't pick, you know, we have that rule where you have to pick one artist. So here's an opportunity for me to get a Knack and Cole, uh, out there, uh, without choosing Knack and Cole. And, um, Too Young was first recorded by Knack and Cole in 1951. Um, it was declared the number one song of the year by Billboard. Yeah. Song was also recorded, of course, by many others, including Sam Cooke, Michael Jackson, and 14 year old Donny Osmond. Um, <laughs> I love the Al Anderson's version, uh, how she begins a cappella for the first couple of verses, then gives way to kind of the, the subtle jazz guitar. I like a really good jazz guitar. Uh, and the rhythm section that eventually takes the song on for a long stretch, you know, as you do in jazz a lot before we come back again to the vocal. Um, as a newcomer to the jazz scene, Anderson has only released two albums so far. So yep. I'm really looking forward to seeing what she has to offer.
1: Okay. I I had to again I've already told you that like you've kind of blown me away with your choices I was really impressed that you included Ellen Anderson I mean she, she has made some serious waves in Europe but no one no one in the United States knows her I mean she remains
0: well Spotify might have helped with the algorithm yeah
1: so. I was I was gonna ask <laughs> um, because that's how I discovered her um, you know I, I did know her I don't I Personally, know very little about her. I mean, there's just not a lot of information out there to, to pick up on yet. Um, but I discovered her through Spotify's Jazz Club. Um, it, it's a playlist that changes each month to recognize the newest releases and the newest voices in jazz. So every month, beginning of the month, I I listen through Jazz Club to see if there's anything that kind of catches my my you know favor. In late 2020, Jazz Club included her rendition of Deed I Do." <clears throat> and i was immediately struck by by the ethereal childlike quality of her voice now when i say childlike i mean i mean that she sounded very young to me yet there was this inherent allure in in the breathy delivery it was it was you know it didn't make sense and i was conflicted i i couldn't tell if i liked her sound but i couldn't stop listening to the song so you know well has that ever happened to you have you ever not known whether you liked a song or not and had to keep playing it to kind of figure it out
0: you mean the performance or the song itself well
1: the, the performance yeah yeah mm-hmm. I, mean, I I did I kept playing it because I, I could not decide do I like this do I like the sound of you know the, of the song here or not well finally my curiosity led me to her Spotify page where I found like you she has two albums and I started listening to the albums on repeat and
0: it didn't sound Swedish no. Abba sounded Swedish. Yeah. And th- that was another <laughs> face thing. Piece of face sounded yeah. Swedish.
1: I mean, I was shocked to learn that, first of all, she wasn't a child at all. She was 30 years old, right? Now, there have been other jazz vocalists known for their girlish voices. I mean, 1950s recording artist Blossom Dairy was, was one great example of that. Still, I did not see it coming. I mean, I continued listening to her, and man, she grew on me, right? She has this voice of like tissue paper, and it, it kind of enrobes a jewel. <laughs> really, her vibrato sometimes gets intimate as it does on her rendition of "I'll Be Seeing You," or it gets misty as it does on her cover of "Smile." Hell, her voice is like a sheer nighty on this song, on "Too Young." Um, but on repeat listens, I began to hear her a little bit differently too. I mean, in truth, she has a tone and a sense of swing like vintage Nino Day. Her English, yeah, it is incredible. I mean, for for it not being her first language, I would never know. I would never know that. And her enunciation, her intonation, they're stellar. She also has this incredible feel for for when to be on behind or ahead of the beat. So yeah, and you know, she's part of a quartet. Every member is considered equal, and she is one of the four members of the quartet. And you know, this particular recording, it's a very unconventional arrangement. Uh, it's far, far cry from Naki original, but you know, the significant there's, there's just a lot of significant emotional range, a playful feel to the arrangement. But it's very, I mean, it's this is a very soft song, and it, it challenges well, all of our music kind of challenges the way in which many jazz vocalists relate and participate in music. Downbeat, I did find a review from Downbeat, which uh, is a premier jazz. Uh, magazine downbeat said uh, it best in their review of the album it, they said Al, Ellen Anderson's depth charges of vocalese as well as lyrical phrasing may cause listeners to rethink how standards post Diana crawl can be sung yeah, that's that's like spot on but yeah I oh uh, I, I I love this woman's voice now and but it it did it was it was a slow very measured uh, process of of having her grow on me.
2: They try to tell us we're too young, too young to really be in love. They say that love's a word, a word we've only heard, but can't begin to know the meaning of And yet we're not too young to know This love will last though years may go And then someday they may recall We were not too young at all (laughs) Do do da do 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 do
1: Here is, um, here is the, the long-awaited Harry Connick Jr. And I said I did not pick Love is Here to Stay by Ella and Louie. That's because I picked Love is Here to Stay by Harry Connick Jr. Um, okay, filmmakers, right? They're, they're always navigating that fine balance of wanting the audience to feel something, but not wanting to tell them what they're feeling or what that feeling is. And music is kind of like their holy grail. Um Take for example, we've already, you know, mentioned it briefly, when Harry met Sally, right? It remains one of the greatest love stories ever filmed. Again, I personally I think I would argue it's the greatest, but I, I digress. When Harry met Sally demanded a soundtrack that could convincingly convey the power of romance. And director Rob Reiner, he knew that the music chosen would play a vital role in the character's development and the overall arrangement of the film. He wasn't interested in a traditional instrumental score, and he knew he wanted jazz and pop standards from the Great American Songbook. It was a brilliant move by Reiner because the songs he chose, many of which we have also chosen for this mixtape, different versions, but you know, it, it invoked the ideals of that more innocent and romantic age. The swing music and ballads from the 40s and 50s, I mean, they, they help when Harry and Sally feel timeless and they, they allow Rob Reiner to pay homage to the, the romance movies of that era. So it's clear to anyone watching the movie that while Harry and Sally may be a late 80s couple, A love story is a love story, no matter the decade. Which kind of explains why we're doing what we're doing for this Valentine's Day special, I suppose. Um, But but Reiner, he asked young jazz pianist Harry Connick Jr. to compose and perform the movie soundtrack, right? Connick was already well-known within jazz circles, but moviegoers had never heard of him. And that changed quickly, because with his swinging piano skills, his warm baritone vocals, I mean, Harry Connick Jr., Recorded and orchestrated some of the most romantic songs of all time for this soundtrack, including, like you said, it had to be you, let's call the whole thing off, don't get around much anymore, I could write a book. But Love is Here to Stay, his arrangement and his performance, Love is Here to Stay, that one just, it, it, I find it so exotic, kind of. Um, I don't know, I I can't find a better word for it. the movie soundtrack itself, it, it eventually reached double platinum status. It earned Connick his first Grammy Award. Suddenly, Connick was everywhere. And he had that, those slyly innocent eyes, slicked down, swept back pompadour. You know, he, he not only crooned like a young Frank Sinatra, he looked like him. And he evoked the supple swagger and the charismatic demeanor of Sinatra's Bobby Soxer heyday. So soon, he even provoked the same fan reactions as Sinatra notably among young women. I mean, they swooned, right? Connick has a voice kind of built for standards, though, and, and perhaps it's best suited to ballads. He, he's admitted that while he loves to sing all kinds of songs, he feels more comfortable, most comfortable, singing ballads. He says that it's, you know, he has longer to sing the words and to communicate, and really such rapport with his audience was key to his rising stardom. But uh, as for the song itself, Love is Here to Stay, It's a popular jazz standard composed by George Gershwin with lyrics by Ira Gershwin. It comes from the 1938 film The The Goldwyn Follies. It was the last musical composition George Gershwin completed before his death. And Ira, his brother, wrote the lyrics after George's death in tribute to him. So I chose this one, though. This one does not have, uh, there is a big band, and you do hear the big band come in uh, in the instrumental break. But this one, as I said, the arrangement is just really unusual. There's an emphasis on percussion. And, you know, really, of no disconics voice on this one. Because at times his vocals are isolated. So incredibly isolated. I mean, he's he's singing a cappella on the song. And then finally, you know, the song readily demonstrates why Conic prefers ballads. Because from the very first note, you will immediately understand why young women do swoon for him.
4: It's... Very clear Our love is here to stay Not for a year Forever and a day The radio and the telephone And the movies that we know They're all just passing fancies that in time may go. Oh, my dear, our love is here to stay. Together, we're going along. in time the Rockies may crumble Gibraltar may tumble there they're only made of clay
5: oh,
4: is here to stay.
0: wonder why do you think Michael Buble is popular just because kind of he's younger now and Harry Connick's considered well, or did Harry just kind of slow down because he got into acting and
1: I think it's a number of things. Conic has continued to record. And I'll be honest, I stopped buying and listening to his albums. Um as we were approaching this, I went back, I listened to all the albums I do know and the albums that I, I purchased, the albums I loved. But then I started listening to some of his newer stuff. It's not bad. But it it's it's almost he's he's kinda shifted I mean, it's still jazz, but it's it's almost like a
0: Dull contemporary jazz. jazz. Exactly,
1: and you know, it's just he's lost that just that magnetism and that that, you know that drive, that charm that kind of defined him early on. Bublé, I think, Bublé was was just the the next, you know, he he stepped in and kind of fulfilled the role that Harry Connick had, you know, uh, let go of. I just the thing is, Harry Connick always struck me as being very humble and very, um, he loved the music. He was in it for the music. I, I'm sure he wanted to make money. Every artist wants to make money. But he, I, I always got the impression that really, more than anything, he wanted to introduce the world to jazz music. Buble does not have that. I mean, Buble just, he comes across very smug to me. Um, his his delivery is just, I think he's too flashy there are some songs on some of his albums I don't even understand why he recorded them in the way that he does. Like, have you ever heard his version of Can't Buy Me Love? No. He has a swing version of Can't Buy Me Love that is just... I listen to it and I think, this this is awful. I mean, why, why would you do this? And it's not even, you know, it's not even, you know, All Hell the Beatles is like, you know, the next coming, but the second coming. But, but, but it's like, this is a song that should not be performed in swing. And it is so over the top. He just...
0: I only know him from when before he was really well known in America he did some stuff with um, bare naked ladies. Yeah. yeah and that's I knew that's, that. that's all that I know.
1: I mean, I here's the thing. Bublé has talent. I mean, he's he's a fine singer. Um, he's continuing, you know, to introduce swing to a new generation for that I'm I'm grateful. But he just everything about the man just rubs me the wrong way. And I'm sure we have listeners right now, uh, listeners to our podcast that are probably offended cuz they love Bublé. Um I just, he, everything about him just rose me the wrong way. I, I just, I can't do Buble, so.
0: As a quick aside, if you haven't watched the uh, Peter Jackson's documentary on the Beatles, Let It Be, uh, I have recording sessions. Yeah, I have not yet, but um, I have heard
1: amazing things about it. It
0: is, uh, hail to Peter Jackson, he went through 150 hours worth of footage. Oh, I can't even imagine. I think it, it ends up being three, about three, two and a half, three hour episodes. So you're getting like around nine hours or so of the 150 and there's no there's nothing there's no narration there. There are a few subtitles to give you some context of things, but it's not told there's no voiceover. It's 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 like you are sitting in, in the studio and you're watching the Beatles. Right. Yeah. No, I've, I've... Right. And, and and have fun and horse around and fight and everything. It's like they they almost forget that the cameras are there. And it, you think you know it, it's a it's a fan watch. I wouldn't recommend this to most people, right? But for a Beatles fan to be able to sit in the studio with them for nine hours and just be a fly on the wall, that's exactly what this is.
1: Yeah, no, it, it is definitely on my, my to do list. I I've heard so many amazing things. I've I've actually heard that it I'm, I don't I've read this a couple places. I don't know what to make of it, but I've read in a couple of reviews that it it goes to prove that Yoko did not break up the band. I don't know what that means, but I, I've read that in a couple of different reviews
0: now. Yes and no. Um, there are. Uh, it shows a lot of other factors. That I, I still, by the way, have the last episode to watch. But um, you really see George Harrison's resentment and the fact that he's not treated as an equal oh, yeah. artistically. Yeah. And so that frustration you definitely see. Um, I think the biggest reason the Beatles break up is because you see with Brian Epstein having passed away the previous year or two, um, they were the kind of people that needed somebody to crack the whip. And when he died, there was no one to crack the whip, and it's like having too many chefs in the kitchen. Oh, yeah, okay. When when Paul McCartney finally steps up and says, because, you know, hey guys, we've been doing nothing for an hour here, we need to get this done. Because they've kind of given themselves a deadline to write this album, record it, and make the documentary. And so they have like two weeks or 10 days to do it. And they're just all kind of messing, almost like if you're doing a school project and no one's, right? (laughs) Right. And one person stands up and says, hey, it's getting late. We need to get this project done. And the rest of the band resented Paul for, oh, well, you have to do it your way. Okay, you're the taskmaster. And Paul's like, no, I don't care. Someone else needs to stand up. He said, John, you used to be the the leader. And you can just see Epstein would have been there cracking the whip to get them in shape. To me, that's the biggest reason why the Beatles break up. Now, there is a discussion, though, that Paul has um, with the others about Yoko, when um, when Yoko and John aren't there, about how she's always there, and right. so he starts bringing Linda in as kind of a counter, and then Ringo brings his wife. And so, <laughs> but the surprising part of it is that yeah, there are there's a lot of tension, but there is a lot of just clowning around, having fun. You know, I had the impression. I think, like a lot of people, that Paul and John were barely speaking at the end. That's what I thought. And no, you can tell from this that yeah, there's tension there under the surface, but they're still they're still having fun, cracking wise, whatever you'd say, as old chums, you know. And the fact that they're like 28, 29 years old. Yeah. It's crazy. But anyway, this isn't a Beatles
1: no but <laughs> broadcast. I, but I just but want I, to recommend. I do want to see that, it so. badly. So. All right. Yeah, it's
0: all you. Okay, so uh, yeah, I kind of ran out of. Of artists because um, not knowing um, that era as well as you and and obviously we don't want to repeat artists so uh, my last two are from um, rock artists that have performed standards okay. yes and uh, I went with uh, Elvis Costello's my funny Valentine from his 1980 album taking liberties it is the shortest on my list it only clocks in at one minute and 29 seconds yep. but man what a powerful one minute and 29 seconds um, you know I knew that Costello could pull off jazz When he performed, as I mentioned last week, with Tony Bennett, um, for they can't take that away from me. Right. Um, You know, at the time, I was you know knew a little bit of Costello when I heard that with Tony Bennett. That may have taken me into the next level with Elvis Costello as well because it was really impressive. Um, My Funny Valentine first appeared in 1937 in another musical. Again, all these musicals that I never heard of. This one, Babes in Arms. Um, My this this is the best stat of the of the day. I think My Funny Valentine has appeared. On thirteen hundred albums by over six hundred different artists. Yep. Yeah, it's kind of considered Chet Baker's signature song, but that, that's like the Yesterday of standards. It is, and it's just that's incredible. Um, of course, I grew up watching the horror movie My Bloody Valentine, so every time I hear My Funny Valentine, <laughs> I I don't know. Right. Um, like I said, although it's short, his Costello's version is perfect. It's simple but powerful and um it was also the b-side of uh, his single oliver's army incidentally too but yeah it's, it's short we're not getting a lot of bang for our buck here in terms of of time but i think we are in terms of performance
1: i, I would agree um first of all I, I i knew this version but i had forgotten all about it uh, frankly until i i heard um i saw it on your list and heard it again he weaves in and out of various genres all the time we we talked to elvis costello before on the on the podcast um and, and you know, he has a number of songs that really demonstrate his, his jazz know-how. I, we talked about that. I think I included one of his jazzier songs once on, on, on a different episode. This is a fantastic rendition, and, and I'm, I'm really grateful you included it. Um, it's a Valentine's Day episode, of course. So I flirted with My Funny Valentine for about two weeks. I kept trying to make it fit in my 12, and I just couldn't do it. Um, yeah, I mean the the definitive version is Chet Baker. Uh, it's his signature song, and if you, if you want an instrumental cover, nobody beats Miles Davis's interpretation of the song. I even considered Michelle Pfeiffer's gorgeous take. Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, It comes from the nineteen eighty nine film, The Fabulous Baker Boys. It's probably, I think, uh, probably the sexiest version of the song. But but as much as I enjoy the song, the thing is there are too many others I still like more, so I kept dropping it from the list. So when, when you had it, I was really grateful. I mean, it's a Valentine's Day episode. We need my funny Valentine. And Costello's version, man, it is bare bones. I mean, it's accompanied by soft guitar, and I do mean soft. He, he could just as well have recorded it a cappella, honestly. And he keeps it so simple, you're right. And and it's one time through the lyrics and done. You know, there's no instrumental break, there's no coda, there's no repeated verse. That, that always happens in a, in a recording of my funny Valentine. But here, he just gives you the lyrics from start to finish and done it's sweet it's succinct it's it's perfect I mean, it, it's, it was an excellent choice I was so happy I I'd forgotten all about it and frankly it is it's it's almost like the perfect lead in to your next pick
0: <laughs> I, I, which the, is the most controversial right sure, but, but but
1: the two back to back I mean it works it's like you know just uh, I, I don't know I, I was just really really excited that you included it my funny
6: valentine sweet comic valentine you make me smile with my heart you look so laughable unphotographable but you're my favorite work of all you figure less than Greek Is your mouth a little weak
4: When you open it to speak Are you
6: smart Don't change your hair for me Not if you care for me Stay
1: Before we get to your next pick, I yeah, one in between it. Nat. Nat, Nat, Nat King all right, he King finally Cole. makes an appearance. Yes. Yay! Um, dulcet tone, Nat King Cole. Oh man, he he only lived to age forty-five, but he more than earned his royal moniker. I mean, three decades of performing, and and during that time he paved the way for African American artists that followed, while quietly but devotedly crusading for civil rights. At the time of his death, at the height of Beatlemania. Matt King Cole was still selling some seven million records a year, okay? So the times had changed. Matt still kept bringing in the sales. He, he was a fleet-fingered piano man. He was a band leader. He was a perennial hipster. And he was really kind of like, a, he was a peerless interpretive singer. I mean, his voice was smooth, seductive, entrancing. And, and he influenced and inspired artists as disparate as, as Ray Charles and Johnny Mathis, you know? I just can't, I can't help but marvel at Cole's intimate warmth, his, his flawless intonation, his subtly piercing manner of getting to the heart of a song. He had improvisatory jazz background and skill, but, but his vocals were more often than not matter of fact, and it's straightforward, always in service of the melody and the lyrics, and his rich baritone, it just revealed a natural honesty, you know. In addition, one glance at the arrangements of Cole's biggest hits, and you'll find the very best of the era boldface names like Nelson Riddle, Gordon Jenkins, Billy May. While all three men were closely associated with Sinatra, their work with Cole was equally superb, and Riddle's association with Cole at Capitol Records directly led to his work with the future chairman of the board. So, I stayed away from the ballads um, that he's best remembered for, because I I felt that I already had enough ballads you know, coming into the episode. I instead cho- chose Cole's hyphenated L-O-V-E, love for inclusion on the mixtape um, this is number three I said there are three standards that I'm always asked to play at weddings yep, yep. this is number three uh, it's always at last uh, the way he looks night and
0: do people know love. or do they come up to you saying oh I, it's the song that goes and then they hum it for a you. lot of times yeah, yeah.
1: I, a lot of times it's requested and they don't give me the name that King Cole but they know this song um, and you know it, it's an upbeat bouncy number that really swings Cole matches the horns punch for punch as though the brass was the second voice of a sunny duet. It was originally the B-side of of his 1964 single, I Don't Want to See Tomorrow. But Love proved so popular internationally, he ended up recording versions of the song in Japanese, Italian, German, Spanish, and French, before the song became the centerpiece of a full-length album of the same name. Now, sadly, this was Nat King Cole's final project before his death from lung cancer. But what's truly remarkable is that he recorded the album as he was dying, yet there is no evidence of his illness in the the recording. His honeyed vocals are as smooth as ever, and his phrasing suggests no difficulty in breathing. None. So, I mean, it's just, I can't begin to, I I can't explain, it's it's beyond
5: uh, my understanding
1: how he sounds as he does, as he's dying of lung cancer, and that's
0: you know? the thing—he died of lung cancer. I think we talked about it on one of our episodes that he—you
1: you brought it—he purposefully
0: it. smoked, you know, three to five packs of cigarettes a day so he could keep that yeah. tone to his voice. And uh, so I'm sure he was addicted, but at, but at the time, I think he he never tried to quit or cut back because he felt like that was part of his sound.
1: Yeah, no, and it, which you know, I and mean, he may have felt even as he was dying that it was worth it. You know, I mean, he, it, it was his livelihood, it was his love, his passion. But yeah, it, it, it killed him young. I mean, he died very, I, he's one of those artists that I just, I can't begin to imagine what he would have done moving forward. Maybe, maybe he would have faded into obscurity, would have become a nostalgic act, I don't know. But there's a part of me that likes to think that Nat King Cole would have changed with the times
0: you know, you think kind of like a Harry Belafonte, where he'd be around and be involved in politics to yeah, some extent. Yeah, I, I
1: do. Yeah. I really do. I mean, I I could totally see that King Cole in that in that role. So it's our loss.
4: L is for the way you look at me. O is for the only one I see. V is very very. Was made for me and you.
1: There you go. That's my, All right, my well, next one.
0: My last one. And I mentioned um, several times, probably, on, on somewhere in the last two. And a half seasons or whatever we've done, two seasons and special episodes. That Bob Dylan um, actually can kind of sing, and there was a—I'd say you know, like in the two thousands and some of his later recordings. Later, in terms of his you know multi-decade career, there were times where it was just like, man, I think he has lost it. Um, a lot of people just felt like, okay, he's just you know either he's not giving any effort, like Dean Martin, um, or he just um, just doesn't have the chops, or or doesn't care. No, it's just Bob Dylan being Bob Dylan. <laughs> he's very, just like he changed his voice for Nashville Skyline and all of a sudden started singing really, really low. And, he, you know, he's he's just, it's just Bob. He, he, you know, has always had this contentious relationship with the press and the critics. And he zigs and zags all over the place, I think, just to annoy them half the time. And uh, so he decides in 2000, the late 2000, what teens or whatever, 2016, 15, 16, 17, that era, to release three albums of jazz pop standards Yeah, and to sing them just straightforward. And yeah, he's not classically, you know, he's not a classic crooner. But I, I think he pulls it off. and the critics also agreed. They also, if he felt like he was going to tick off the critics, he, he was sorely um, incorrect because um, most of the critics thought that he uh, did a pretty, pretty decent job yep. of just singing the song straightforward. Uh, but just the way that he shapes his gravelly delivery to that smart, the sparse, uh, smooth arrangements behind him, I think is a treat. Um, I decided to go with again. I, there's three albums worth of of, of songs to choose from. Um, I'm gonna go with it. Had to be you. It, it's a song I love. It's a song, of course, I was introduced to from When Harry Met Sally, like many others. Um, but I think you know you get, he's not pitch perfect here. So some people would listen to this and be like, oh, it's like nails in a chalkboard. But you gotta kind of put it in context of of Dylan and the whole Dylan thing and kind of the story. I kind of just went over the fact that he just wanted to prove to people that yeah, he can still he can still carry a tune.
6: Why do I do just as you say? Why must I just give you your way? Why do I sigh? Why don't I try to forget? It must have been that something lovers call fate Kept me saying I have to wait I saw them all, just couldn't fall Hell we met It had to be you It had to be you I wandered around And finally found The somebody who Could make me be true Could make me be blue And even be glad Just to be sad
1: Thinking of you First of all, in fairness, to begin, I own Fallen Angels, the album that this comes from. Yep. Um, I enjoy the album. And I even selected a song from that album for a previous episode.
0: Oh yeah, that's right, you did. I, yep, I chose yep, uh, yep, that, yep.
1: that old Black Magic that's by Dylan right. for the Magic right.
0: episode. Yep. Yep.
1: I don't know that I would have chosen Dylan for this episode, um, but I, I totally get why you did. Um, and you know, it. His is is actually a very tasteful rendition. And like Elvis Costello before this, Dylan keeps it simple. You
0: know? well, like I was saying, I was running out, so it was either this well, or Rod Stewart, you, and, and I wasn't gonna pick Rod Stewart, okay, so
1: thank you for that. <laughs> um, but I mean there are no frills here, which is nice, and his phrasing Dylan's phrasing is spectacular. You know, I, I at, at the beginning of last week's episode I, I went into great detail about how pop artists today they keep recording these jazz albums and they need to stop because they don't get it right. Dylan gets it right. Now I think that's in many ways testament to Dylan, you know, just being Dylan. Because the man, I've gotten to the point where Dylan is not always my go-to. I mean, I have to be in the mood for Dylan, but he can do it all. Sure, he can do it all. He has been arguably the most influential, one of the most influential. Uh, Well, I think he's the keystone.
0: He's the keystone. I mean, he inspired everybody. He took everything from the past and the roots and and then brought it to the modern music. I I would
1: would agree. And I would even argue, you know, when you listen to this, you know, these three albums, they're technically, yeah, they are three albums of standards, but every standard chosen is one that Sinatra did. These were technically a trilogy tribute to Sinatra. And, you know, you listen to this and you start to think about Dylan and what he's done and how he's done it. And the reality is two entirely different genres, of course. Well, Dylan has been all over the place. You know, he weaves in and out of genres all the time. But I would argue that Dylan learned a a lot of what he does from listening to Sinatra. Oh, sure, definitely. Without question. So, I mean, you know, his phrasing, like I said, it's spectacular. It's sometimes heartbreaking, sometimes hilarious. The playing is sublime. You know, here's the thing. He doesn't try to play this as jazz, necessarily. I and mean, he plays it on the guitar, and it's just, it's a very beautiful, it's a beautiful rendition. I mean, it's not, not jazz, but he's not going for, you know, a very, he's not trying to impress you with his jazz chops, I guess.
0: Well, and, and, and so many artists today use um, autotune right. in a very subtle way. Yeah. Uh, some use it in a blatant way. Uh, but I think even modern artists will use it when recording to kind of you know because very few people are pitch perfect right uh, It takes a lot of time to get a take perfect, and sometimes you know they would he 's definitely not using any sort of like you know auto tune here oh, no
1: no Well, it 's Dylan
0: he I mean, just allows himself to be imperfect
1: yeah. the man has never been tuned auto or otherwise <laughs> but i but this is a nice reminder though once again that dylan can't actually sing yep and he can sing in key yep I and mean, he does go flat when he carries a note too long
0: right and that's where he that's where you would use a uh, auto tune right yeah to kind of correct the pitch yeah, and they don't.
1: He, he his vibrato is he is He carries that that long phrase it's it goes flat at the end but i mean he it, it's a it's a perfectly tasteful very good cover um you know, it 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 had to be you. This is another song I, oh man, I wanted to include it, and it is one of my favorites. And if I was just going with favorite songs, it would definitely have made the cut. Um, but I was also looking to introduce some new artists, and I was looking to make sure that I had a variety of the legendary, you know, vocalists. And just the way it fell out, it had to be you. Just it didn't didn't make it. Um, plus, Billy Holiday, Frank Sinatra, Harry Connick, those are probably the three. Best versions, uh, in my opinion, and it, they were all off the table anyway. We don't repeat artists, so I probably would have gone with Ray Charles' version had I, you know, added the song. But I'll tell you what, I'm ecstatic you included it, and I have no qualms.
0: Well, it's my sneaky way of getting rock on to yeah, the and, uh, big Man I'm, episode, and I'm so. cool with
1: that. I have, I have <laughs> absolutely no problem with Dylan being here, and it, it, it's it's a very good version. I mean, it's is it the best? Probably not, but. It's good. It's hmm. very good. So there you go. And that takes me to my final pick. Um, I end with a... Another
0: artist I've never heard. Another of.
1: artist you've never heard.
0: I, who <laughs> I can even pronounce.
1: Uh, Nikki Janowski.
0: Janowski, okay. Janowski. Is she Polish? Uh,
1: Jewish. She's Jewish, huh? Jewish. Uh, probably Polish, yeah. too. <laughs> but but she is a nice Jewish girl. I know that. Um, she's another Canadian uh, artist. A lot of Canadian artists do jazz. They might, they
0: might like jazz more in Canada in the mainstream than they, we do in they America.
1: They well likely. They likely may. I, I. You know, it's when I think I didn't think of this before, but I have. Well, I mean, Barlow, Crawl, Buble, Yanovsky, um, um, Jan Monheit. Uh, so, very nearly, not all, but very nearly every contemporary artist that I've included um, is Canadian. So I, I never really gave that much thought. Um, all right. So Janowski, first of all, um, in 2010, that's uh, when the album that this song comes from was released. In 2010, the Noras, the Dianas, the Madelines <laughs> of the current jazz diva scene. They welcomed this 16-year-old Canadian vocal phenom, okay, Nikki Anosky, to the ball. Um, she was 16 years old at the time.
0: When she recorded this. When
1: she recorded this, and if you, when you listen to this, folks, I mean, her voice—she does not sound 16. She has the confidence. I mean, she is an audacious, confident, bold, uh, young girl who who she better understood the, you know, the the requirements that the just the protocols and the, the conventions of jazz better than a lot of the people who've been performing jazz for decades um so when when she made it into the scene you know all these um jazz divas as i said that have been performing and they were building reputation and their, their stars were rising they possibly stuck pins in her effigy <laughs> honestly because this girl gave them stiff competition um if they did they'd be Honestly, they could be forgiven. I mean, Yanofsky was that good, almost intimidatingly good. Um, she had just this awesome grasp of the techni- technicalities, right, of this of the past eighty odd years of Western popular vocals, um, and like I said, just this precocious confidence for anything and everything she did. Janosky exhibited a, a potential that that gave even the most curmudgeonly of jazzers pause. I think, um, and the reviewers agreed. Uh, the critics. These days, when jazz vocals succeed on a pop scale, when they succeed, there's always a ghost lurking in the background. You know, Michael Buble riffing on Sinatra, Madeline Peru, who we didn't include, summoning Billie Holiday, even Natalie Cole's Beyond the Grave duets with her dad, right? In the case of Nikki Yanofsky, it is all Ella all the time. Her Ella Fitzgerald affinity runs deep. It, It formed the basis of her appeal when she grabbed headlines at the Montreal International Jazz Festival in 2006. Um, it was the reason for her inclusion on Verve's 2007 compilation, We All Love Ella. It was the focus of her 2008 indie label debut, Ella of the I Swing. And it fueled her 2010 major label debut, uh, Nicki, uh with Ella-inspired swing classics such as Take the A Train, You'll Have to Swing It, and, and I Got Rhythm. Uh, the album was produced by Phil Ramone, whose track record includes not only late period Sinatra and Tony Bennett, but also blockbuster albums by Paul Simon and Billy Joel. And Nikki was actually a mix of songbook standards and pretty convincing jazz pop-leaning originals. Um, the album's blend of ardent nostalgia and, and crossover ambition, it said a great deal about the shifting center of, of this young, young woman's talent. Her relationship to jazz was at once evocative and evasive. I mean, she, she embraced its accoutrements, uh, notably scat singing, the wordless high-wire act that was Fitzgerald, specialty, with period fidelity, and, and as though she were donning a costume or inhabiting a role. Yet, Nikki Iannowski's original work suggested that her talents were only beginning to reveal themselves. The real surprises were yet to come. Um, from her 2010 release, I've selected a song that features a really unusual mix. it's, yeah, it's a strange hybrid, but I it, like it. It really is. Because here, Yanosky delivers a powerhouse version of the standard on the sunny side of the street, yet the song is bookended uh, unexpectedly with a rocking performance from the rhythm section of Led Zeppelin's Fool in the Rain, of all things.
0: It actually works.
1: It, it yeah. does, yeah. I mean, who knew that Fitzgerald blends so well with Page and Plant? That is not a combination I ever would have come up with on my own. Um, but it, it is is—it is just, I have this song, every time I hear it, I am just blown away. Um, I'm blown away by the entirety of her Of her first. Does she
0: do album. a lot of hybrids or is this just kind of a? This
1: was just, well, in terms of covers, no, this is the, the one. Um, but, see, here's the thing. Nikki was Janowski's only real foray in, in traditional jazz. Okay. Because when she released her sophomore album four years later, suddenly she was all grown up, striking a dusty Springfield-esque pose on the cover. Uh, the album was called Little Secrets. Very, very good. And it was equally arresting um, that, that her musical direction had changed. I mean, gone were the standards, which had been her calling card. And in its place were songs that were neither entirely pop nor truly jazz. And all of them were infused with a bit of 60s Motown flair. The second album uh, was produced by Quincy Jones, if that gives you any idea. And the resultant playlist suggested an impressive progression from Yanoski's hero worship to kind of like self-actualization. Um, it was also an obvious attempt to write songs for an audience her own age uh, at that point. Uh, she was 20 then. And, you know, likely just wanting to escape the confinements of an older, less radio-friendly Musical genre. She's recorded other albums since. I've I've not listened to the albums after uh, Little Secrets, but from what I understand, I mean she's firmly rooted in jazz. I mean she she's jazz trained. She's that that was that's still her first love. But she has she continues to evolve, and you know the jazz element is there. It's it's hybridized with a number of different genres, Um, but this was her jazz her one major label jazz album. After this she, she's you know, she's just constantly I think in part she's also, or at least she was, maybe she has already found it, but I think she was trying to find her sound. Trying to find uh, you know what would make her happy or what what best suited her voice. I don't know. But man, this is a powerhouse song.
3: Ooh, oh, oh, oh. Grab your coat and snatch your hat. Leave your worries on the doorstep. Just direct your feet to the sunny side of the street. Can't you hear that pit a And that happy tune is your step. Life can be so sweet on the sunny side of the street. I used to walk. In the shade, with those blues on parade, no longer afraid of the over. I crossed over. If I never had a set, I'd be rich as Rockefeller. The gold dust at my feet on the sunny side of the street. Hey.
0: All right, well, I think that's everything.
1: That is. We just have to sequence and All right. name the thing.
0: All right, well, we're going to sequence. We will be right back after this. And we're back,
1: and we have a sequence. Yes, we do. So here we go. The order of songs on arguably the most romantic mixtape we will ever make uh, for, for our podcast. It began side A with Something's Gotta Give by Robin McKellie. That leads into A Beautiful Friendship by Jeremy Davenport. That leads into Taking a Chance on Love by Jan Monheit. And then Sammy Davis Jr., All of You. Tony Bettens, The Best is Yet to Come, followed by Peggy Lee's Fever. Ellen Anderson's Too Young, followed by Chances Are by Johnny Mathis. Deed I Do by Dana Crawl. What a Little Moonlight Can Do by Emily Claire Barlow. Let's Call the Whole Thing Off by Billie Holiday and You're Nobody Till Somebody Loves You by Dean Martin. Side B begins with That Old Black Magic by Louis Prima, Keely Smith, Sam Butera, and The Witnesses. Really, just Louis Prima and Keely Smith. I didn't have to give it the band. but, but um, Then Love, Nat King Cole, On the Sunny Side of the Street, Fool in the Rain, that's the full title, by Nikki Yanofsky. More, the theme from Mondo Kane by Bobby Darren. I Could Write a Book by Anita O'Day, that leads into Love is Here to Stay by Harry Connick Jr. The Nearness of You, Ella Fitzgerald and Louis Armstrong. Blue Moon by Julie London. As a reminder, Civil Shepherd is not on Spotify, but we do hope you enjoyed what little you heard of the song. Um, My Funny Valentine, then, by Elvis Costello. Followed by Dylan's "It Had to Be You," then at last by Etta James, and we end the mixtape with "Old Blue Eyes," Sinatra's "The Way You Look Tonight." So, all right, I think it is. I think it's romantic as hell. Um, your grandparents would love it. <laughs> so, um, you know, if you if you want to wax nostalgic and you know, just. Uh, Maybe you want to role play this Valentine's Day. You know, you want to go back to World War II and the the war years, or immediately after the early '50s. I don't know, but hopefully, swinging '60s for me. Swinging '60s that works too. Um, Hopefully, uh, you will give it a listen. Hopefully, you like what we did. Um, We will when we return in May. I promise. uh, For season three, uh, we we will be Gen X once more. But I thank you again for letting me do this. Of course, yeah, it was I just. I don't know. I, to me, it, it was different, but it's it's the perfect mix for Valentine's Day. By the way, this should go without saying, but I think we should name this uh, this particular episode My Funny Valentine. That uh, works for me. So there you go. A romantic dinner mixtape, My Funny Valentine. Which perfect. Which makes the most sense, I think. And yeah, uh, job well done.
0: All right, we'll watch that Beatles documentary so we can talk about that the next time we get together. Absolutely. And uh, this is the second of our special episode in our kind of between seasons. Yep. Um, but we will be back um, for season three, like you say, in the spring. Yep. And, uh, and have some more uh, episodes for you over the summer.
1: Sounds good. Um, all right, that's all I got.
0: That's all I have, too. All right, well, that is all for now. Hot Funk, Cool Punk, even if it's old junk, another mix of memories
1: awaits next season. But for now, press pause, lift the needle, and hit eject. Have a very happy Valentine's Day, and we will see you on the flip side.